0: Our next speaker is Julian Sprung. Julian is the president and co-founder of Two Little Fishies, Incorporated. He's been keeping marine aquariums for over 40 years, and he was a pioneering force in our early understanding of how to keep corals in captive settings. Uh, He's published several books, including um, uh, An Invert Quick Guide and a, A Quick Guide for Corals and The Reef Aquariums, volume one, two, and three. Today, Julian is going to be presenting us versus them. How did the aquarium hobby become such a diverse, divisive practice and what does that mean for its future? Uh, Please welcome Julian Sprung to the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you everybody for coming today. Um, This is uh, gonna be a a different sort of talk for me. Uh, Lately I've been doing these little stories talks where I discuss um, various topics all within, uh, with a common thread, and in some respects this uh, talk does have that aspect because I am talking about various topics, but it's more concentrated thread here. where I'm really focusing on all of the good about our hobby, that is my intention, to really focus on the positive aspects of the aquarium keeping hobby, but uh, being mindful of the fact that not everybody, um, not necessarily even in this room, but not everybody on this planet views the aquarium hobby in the same way. And I want to also mention that I'm going to share some opinions Many of you probably know I'm going to touch upon these topics and I'll share some opinions that may not necessarily be your own and it's okay if you don't agree with me. Um, And I also want to say that if I say something negative about a particular group, organization, uh, or even people, uh, it's not because I'm trying to persuade you to feel badly or feel bad about them or have a negative opinion, I'm just presenting a point of view. Uh, I never want to uh, uh, speak badly of people uh, and give that impression because I think that's ugly. Uh, But I have to show the different points of view about a particular subject. So there's there's no way avoiding that in in discussing it. So please keep that in mind. And ultimately my goal in in discussing this is to... um, expose the points of disagreement that affect our hobby uh, that we do talk about on a daily basis if we're discussing the hobby and then propose that wouldn't it be great if we could all look at both sides and understand our common grounds and common goals. So here we begin us versus them. Who are we? We like to think that we are reef conservationists, and I think we are. Some people think that we're Raiders of the Reef. There was an article written by Mark Durr back in the early 1990s, published in Audubon magazine. It was of that title, Raiders of the Reef. Who would agree that we're obsessive? (laughs) I know. Collectors is another name that you have to keep in mind as associated with our hobby that is involved. Uh, The collection of marine life by definition is collection, and then we have collections of marine life in our homes. And we get, if you look at a conference like MACNA or reef palooza or Reefstock, you have vendors selling little frags of corals, each with a different name, and this is very much a collection hobby, like collecting stamps or... The birders who collect photographs of birds, there's some common thread there. And maybe we're all a little bit weird freaks, aren't we? So, someone who's not familiar with aquarium keeping could easily be persuaded that something that we do is harmful. It's very easy to make that connection. So, look at a photograph like this. If this was published in a a newspaper or in a magazine, what is this guy doing? You know, that looks like a coral reef, and he's just gathering up all these pieces of corals, and he's raping this reef, isn't he? And for those who don't know, that's Joe Waiulo, who may be here in the room. Uh, he's certainly here at the conference today. Hey, Joe, and thanks for sending me the photo. Um, you know, is he destroying an endangered reef? or is he maintaining his aquarium? You know, if you haven't seen these photos, it really gives you a perspective of looking at this from a different point of view. The problem is people really don't understand what it is that we do, and that leaves our hobby and our industry wide open to a lot of interpretation that can be utilized against us. What's happening now in Hawaii, in Fiji, in Indonesia. I could go on for hours and hours on these topics and I'm not going to. Um, Perhaps we'll hear some more from Vincent uh, Chalies at the uh, banquet uh, on these topics, but um, oh, by the way, turn off your phones, (laughs) I forgot to do that myself. Turn off the ringers. Um, Anyway, I bring this subject up because there are different organizations around the world, some in a coordinated fashion, uh, fortunately most not in a coordinated fashion, uh, that are actively seeking to limit uh, collection of marine life and keeping of aquariums uh, in homes. Uh, This has been true for many, many years, for decades in fact, but it seems to me that it's more true today than ever. And that's a part of the subject of this talk. On this subject is this word here, credit. And I'm not referring to MasterCard and Visa. I'm referring to recognition that there is value in the collective knowledge of the aquarium hobby. What you do um, has makes a difference in this world and it's worth something. And the aquarium industry and the aquarium hobby deserves credit and it often doesn't get it. Now, this gets to me talking negative and I don't want to um, disparage what people are doing. Here are a couple of college graduates who are doing good work, don't get me wrong. They've created a coral farm after securing two million dollars as an investment. And as a side note, if the hurricane track is accurate, it's going to go right over their farm. Um, In any case, uh, many of us here Some of us here have coral farms ourselves uh, and have thought about applying the technology and techniques that we use in our aquariums to do good in the greater world. And many people have actually done that already. But look, here's a story from June 13th. I've seen a few stories about these guys over the past couple of years. Notice that on the bottom line, their correction, the story has been updated to correct that Coral Vita is the world's first commercial land-based coral farm. Really? (laughs) We don't publicize widely enough what we've been doing for decades already, so the world doesn't know it. We deserve credit. Because otherwise, other people will take the credit. And some of those people may take away your rights to have an aquarium. Remember that. Now here's another talented person doing good work. I'm not uh, trying to disparage him, but Dr. Dave Vaughan, uh, There have been a number of articles and uh, videos published, uh, you know, on TV, online, showing the work he's doing with coral restoration, which is wonderful work. But there's this storyline about a eureka moment, finding that breaking the coral down into microfragments causes the coral to heal itself at an accelerated rate. And it credits him with that discovery. And I think back to when I first met him, which was at Harbor Branch Institution when I visited ocean reefs and aquariums for the first time. can't explain that. <laughs> so, anyway, breakthroughs. Just this past week, the Florida Aquarium succeeded in breeding uh, in captivity uh, the endangered pillar coral. Uh, for those of you who may not know it, pillar coral is one of the most beautiful corals that, in the world and one of the most beautiful ones in the Caribbean, certainly. And it was never common in the wild. Um, And nowadays with corals, uh, especially in the Caribbean, uh, populations having been decimated and declining, uh, the fate of pillar coral in the wild is really, really doubtful uh, uh, that it would succeed. It was very likely to be extinct functionally in the wild. And this is because of the way corals spawn. Uh, They release their gametes into the water, and the eggs and sperm have to find each other. Many corals actually release both eggs and sperm, uh, but the uh, viability of self-fertilizing is is often very, very low. Uh, So you need to have good diversity of genetics to perpetuate the species, and if the corals are 50 or 100 miles apart, the likelihood of the gametes finding each each other is, is zero. So this was recognized, and now that we have, we as an aquarium industry have the techniques down to maintain corals in captivity. And uh, an organization has uh, figured out how to promote corals to spawn in captivity, utilizing techniques that the aquarium industry has uh, promoted, uh, developing lighting systems that can be programmed with computers. See what's happened? Now we have this ability to save this coral from the brink of extinction. And just this week it was announced that it had happened. They had spawned in captivity and they're settling out larval corals. So I am thrilled about this. Um, and this was done at the Florida Aquarium in partnership with all of these folks. and. Of course, you may remember Jamie Craggs, who won Aquarist of the Year in, in just last year. Uh, he really spearheaded this uh, project of figuring out how to promote coral spawning in captivity. Most of us, when we propagate and we have propagate corals and have a coral farm, we do that by vegetative fragmentation. We break them up. We do what Dr. Vaughn uh, was doing. Um, But he, Jamie, really figured out the ways to make the corals uh, spawn, reproduce. There is a rumor, though, (laughs) that there are other factors, but I can't comment on that. I want to be up here and say to you, thank you, because the work that you do in your hobby and those of you out here in the industry, manufacturers who develop products that make the hobby a better hobby, we're all involved, and we should all be thanked for our work. Now, I don't mean by saying that to take away any credit for the people who just succeeded in spawning uh, those pillar corals. They did wonderful work, and they deserve all the credit and the thanks. But it shouldn't go without saying that the aquarium industry is behind this with our technology, our expertise, and oftentimes our funding. CITES. CITES um, is a convention that regulates the trade of endangered species. And it just um, finished a organizational meeting recently And I bring it up because it's apparent that CITES is taking a closer look at the aquarium hobby and the trade in marine ornamentals. That's a concern because you would think that the uh, shakers and movers of this convention would base their decisions on real science. That's not necessarily the case. Um, Here's a statement. Uh, this is from a couple of days ago, from Ornamental Fish International. It's an organization that, that defends the pet industry. Um, that the general signal to be taken from this latest meeting was that we're facing even stronger and stricter regulations as time goes by. Um, and they didn't mince words. CITES is turning out to be dominated by groundless cl- claims, poor science, or hardly any science at all. Uh, in relying on precautionary principle, uh, just to be careful in making a decision. So um, the next conference will be in Costa Rica, and that's a country that proudly announced a ban on the import keeping and trade of all non-domesticated animals, uh, be it for pets, zoos, or for any other purpose. So, uh, we're looking at a next CITES convention that may have a strong impact on on the aquarium trade. We can hope not, but it's a possibility. Here from Swain Fossa, uh, who was uh, like myself, also an author of, of aquarium books. He was there, um, and uh, you know you can see there is influence in these meetings from um, animal rights organizations. completely other subject. The world really is round, by the way. Um, this was a, a great paper several years back uh, demonstrating the evolution of this wonderful pygmy angelfish, the resplendent angelfish. How did it come to be uh, at Ascension Island uh, in the middle Atlantic? Uh, so. It evolved from an ancestor uh, basically like or the same as uh, Centropygia acanthops which is the flameback or fireball pygmy angelfish and that fish occurs in the Indian Ocean. This is the range of Centropygia acanthops, all the red lines there. And notice carefully the tip of South Africa there. So you can see how close the natural range of acanthops gets to the Atlantic. And the normal barrier to that crossing is that the water is really cold in the South Atlantic there. But we have this process, and it's a natural process, where you have warm water eddies that travel down the coast of Africa and carry the larvae and eggs and bring them into the Atlantic. This was a um, collaboration, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, uh, where you can look at this, I'm putting this slide here so that you can make notes if you're interested or take pictures and look at this online. Uh, But I'm gonna show you just a, a little brief bit of the video. It's fascinating to see it in higher definition on your screen here, it's a little bit blurry. Perpetual ocean and it shows the circulation patterns of the seas all over the world. You can see the Gulf Stream there, going through the Straits of Florida and then up the East Coast of the United States. And we'll go across the Atlantic and see what I was talking about. Almost there. So there, you can see how these, looks like currents almost, like uh, hurricanes. But those, okay, so those eddies will bring lots of things into the Atlantic. They have done so many times in history. Uh, here, Ketodandolosus is kind of a, an ugly butterfly fish that lives in the Indian Ocean, almost the same exact range as uh, canthops and take a look at that. That's Ketodon uh, delosus on the right, and Ketodon uh, sedentarius on the left is the Caribbean species. And is there any doubt where the Caribbean one came from? That hasn't been proven scientifically, but I'm sure that it will be someday. Stereonephthia. This looks like an Indo-Pacific uh, Nephtheid coral, um, and there are plenty of species of Sterea that look like this, uh, but this one comes from Brazil and uh, should not be a surprise how, that, how it got there. So what's next? That's the range of the lionfish. Notice it goes all the way to the tip of South Africa. What are the chances that lionfish won't someday migrate into the Atlantic by this route? Personally, I think zero but they're already in the Atlantic because of us. And that fact is used to disparage the aquarium industry. Just point that out. We could just build a wall, I suppose. Related reading, if you read. (laughs) Uh, These are interesting books on the topic of invasion biology. Where Do Camels Belong? is a particularly good one if you have a chance. The New Wild looks at this uh, synthesis in the Anthropocene. The original book is Invasion Biology, Critique of a Pseudoscience and a more recent one, Beyond the War on Invasives. Very interesting uh, points and counterpoints on a, a very complex subject. And that subject is tied to our pet trade and to the aquarium hobby in particular, and generates a great deal of concern. You hear about it every day, or I do at least, maybe because I'm paying attention. Uh, it's viewed politically, psychologically, and to some extent scientifically as one of the greatest threats to life as we know it. Here's a thought for you. It's one of the greatest threats to our freedom to have an aquarium. Follow the laws, don't release creatures from your aquarium. Fish sentience and the anti-aquarium movements. Okay. I put this up here. I recommend that you read this article that you can find online through a glass, sadly. It's an essay by Bernd Bruner, who's written quite a bit about uh, the aquarium hobby. And you would think that he would uh, write in a more positive light, but he has uh, taken the point of view on the side of animal rights organizations. Um, I want to say that I don't agree with him, but I think that he writes very, very well. Very, um, he, he makes really, really interesting arguments, so I recommend reading what he does write. Animal rights groups use sentience as a point to argue against keeping fish as pets. And they currently are publishing articles uh, promoting the end to the hobby of keeping betta fish, which for most of you know that betta fish are considered a beginner's fish. It's a way that many people get involved in the aquarium hobby in general. So it's no accident that they're focusing their attention on betta fish. They're also aiming to shut down collection of ornamental marine fishes, and they've had some success in pushing back uh, in Hawaii and and shutting down collection for periods of time and curtailing uh, the methods uh, that are used uh, in collection. And Hawaii is one of the most um, well-regulated, sustainable fisheries in the world. So they're starting in a place where we could demonstrate Uh, scientifically uh, what a positive impact and and no harm uh, the aquarium industry has. Do animal rights organizations really believe that fish never die or suffer in the wild? It's kind of an absurd thought. There are scientists who study fish sentience in a university uh, setting, and it's interesting to see a quote like I've put here Uh, by uh, Sonia Ray, who, you can look her up, that that is her area of research. And she she wrote, whether fishes are sentient beings remains an unresolved and controversial question. Um, From the point of view as a scientist, and I'm trained as a scientist, I understand where she's coming from, but from the point of view as an aquarist and someone who has kept fish, it's kind of an absurd statement she makes there. Um, Science must work from the point of view of testable ideas and free of emotional bias, but there are many, many papers, scientifically uh, proven, um, you know, showing communication by fish, use of tools, solving problems. So, all I can say is what lack of sentience can one imagine? There's a good book on this topic, another one I'm recommending, uh, by Jonathan Balcom, what what a fish knows, and it covers some very interesting uh, experiments done to demonstrate that these fish are are rather sophisticated, and we all know that because we keep them. Highlighting fish sentience is not, or is a point of interest to everyone. It's something that that should really catch your attention and fascinate you. It's not a point to argue that fish shouldn't be kept in aquariums. The most important thing to take away from it, it's a reminder of our responsibility to provide the best care for them in our homes, where they are collected, and at every point uh, in the chain of transporting them, getting them to our hobby. This brings up the subject of bioethics which is the study of ethical issues emerging from advances in biology and in medicine. And of course, we are advancing with our aquarium hobby, and that very fact uh, opens up all sorts of questions in ethics. Is what we're doing ethical? I should mention here a side note that Dr. Bruce Carlson just uh, completed an article. I don't remember whether it's going to be in the latest edition of Coral Magazine, I think so, Uh, about long-lived corals in captivity. And the question proposed by that uh, article is, how do we provide for pets that will outlive us? Biophilia, another related topic. Means love of life uh, or living systems, uh, first used by Eric Fromm uh, to describe a psychological orientation, being attracted to all that is alive and and vital. How many of you understand this idea? I don't. I can answer for you. It's all of you. Um, So, the hypothesis of biophilia suggests that humans possess an innate tendency to seek connections with nature and other forms of life. And that was uh, elaborated by uh, Edward O. Wilson uh, in a book on that same, the title of the book was the the same word. So, yeah, who is the managing partner at Abiz? You can find him out here. (laughs) Uh, But... uh, Many of you have other pets aside from your reef aquarium. How many of you have dogs or cats? Quite a few. Grow plants, keep orchids? Quite a few, I imagine. Yeah. Do our pets ever really love us or they're just there for the food? Hmm. I think there's genuine affection. We aquarists are biophiles. Animal rights organizations Love animals too. People who are members of animal rights organizations, I should say that, love animals too. But they're not biophiles. In fact, their objective is to prevent biophiles from having animals in their homes. It's a yin and yang. Should we stop keeping pets? Some people believe so. So, biophiles associate with plants too, of course, and we reef aquarium keepers, we create whole ecosystems in our homes. I don't know how many of you remember uh, the late Dr. Oliver Sacks, if you may remember the movie, movie Awakenings. He has written a number of books, and, and this, these few quotes in the next couple of slides um, caught my attention because they relate. He said, as a writer, I find gardens essential to the creative process. As a physician, I take my patients to gardens whenever possible. All of us have had the experience of wandering through a lush garden or a timeless desert, walking by a river or an ocean or climbing a mountain and finding ourselves simultaneously calmed and reinvigorated, engaged in mind, refreshed in body and spirit. The importance of these physiological states on individual and community health is fundamental and wide-ranging. In 40 years of medical practice, I have found only two types of non-pharmaceutical therapy to be vitally important for patients with chronic neurological diseases, music and gardens. Now, it's making a leap, but I believe this also applies to what we do with our aquariums. They are like gardens. Is it wrong to promote the health benefits to humans of keeping aquariums or any pets? It's an ethical question and a valid question. Change of topic, wild caught versus aquacultured. If you look online on Facebook and on uh, reef keeping forums, this topic is discussed on a weekly basis and we have different players in the aquarium industry that have a financial stake in this question of wild caught versus aquaculture. And I will state for the record that I really like aquacultured and I really like wild caught. (laughs) I think both have a place and both stand room for improvement Anyway, choice versus no choice, something that catches my attention when aquaculture is promoted with the idea that it is, on the one hand, removing pressure from the wild reef and on the other hand, providing uh, an alternative that we should really support instead of wild caught. It's a tricky argument to be making because the organizations that are opposed to the aquarium-keeping hobby could care less whether it's wild-caught or aquacultured; They just don't want you to have an aquarium. So we really do need to join and be on the same side. Carbon footprint, that's another interesting idea. How much energy are we spending uh, to raise aquaculture marine life? Um, and sometimes the marine life is aquacultured far away and is transported. So it's a tricky argument to say that one is better than the other uh, with regard to its carbon footprint. I don't think that should really be a big part of the argument. Conservation of reefs, that's a good point, but it shouldn't be stated that aquaculture is uh, the only form of conserving reefs because there is room to promote wild harvest as reef conservation. It's good to promote uh, the value of the reef as a resource uh, to an island nation or a place where that resource can be utilized if it is utilized sustainably. There is an in-between aquaculture and wild harvest uh, technique of uh, capturing fish larvae at night with light, lights that, that bring them up to the surface or, or attract them, they're already near the surface, and then rearing them in captivity. And that's a very, very positive uh, activity. Mariculture of corals, of course, is somewhere in between wild harvest and aquaculture. It's not upland, it's in the sea, it's in the native country where it comes from. So there's many variations and many shades, and we as an industry should be supporting all of them. Uh, Rising Tide Conservation is, is one of the best organizations that is promoting the research and development of uh, ornamental marine life culture, and I recommend everyone support them. Here was a a recent post that was capturing that concept that I'm concerned about, uh, reducing the impacts of wild populations of Bangai cardinal fish, promoting uh, only uh, aquacultured ones. These kinds of messages, have a, a double edge to them and you have to think about uh how how is this characterized and does this really help our industry now i would say that you can still nowadays buy wild caught bangai cardinal fish that suffer from a virus that makes them unviable uh in captivity they they only live maybe a few days or a couple of weeks at most and the aquacultured ones don't suffer from this problem. Uh, So those topics were covered in the uh, book on the subject of Bangai cardinal fishes. It's a really complex issue too because uh, Bangai cardinal fishes were released in Indonesia and in places that were outside of their native range. And so they are now available as wild caught, but not from the original habitat where, where they theoretically should be protected. So uh, this is a really, really complex subject that was brought up in in this post. Uh, And I cannot in a few minutes just cover every last detail of it, but I wanted to bring it up to show in this us versus them subject how what seems at first a fairly straightforward black and white idea is really very gray and needs careful consideration who's right it's not so simple to say one is right or the other isn't it is a mix of ideas designer fishes do you love them do you hate them why are we divided on this topic you know who would have imagined this ten years ago huh that clownfish would have ornamental fins like that or some of the newer varieties of clownfish. Personally, I think that it's very, very creative. It stimulates interest in the hobby when you have new varieties of fish, whether they're wild caught or produced in captivity. I support it. I, I really like uh, the uh, developments of the ornamental aquarium trade. There are people who are opposed to it, and it has to do with you know genetic integrity, uh, of the, the different species involved, and it's worth listening to all the arguments. Curios was at one time very much associated with the marine aquarium hobby. When we, before we kept live rock and live corals, we used dead coral skeletons. Um, in any tourist destination in Florida, you can find uh, shell shops like this. What do you think about this? Any reaction in the audience? Horrible, you say, yeah. We often have a revulsion, a negative reaction to seeing all of these dead organisms as opposed to the living ones we keep in our aquariums. You know, some of them may be endangered like the Nautilus that you see there, okay? But I wanna say something in showing you these pictures. Here is an article online, shells are a passion. When I see this lady and her shell collection, I think of us, there's really not much difference. Divide and conquer or unite and prosper. We have to think about what makes us feel that one activity is bad and one is good. And we have to understand it from the different points of view. Think about Blackfish, the movie that came out a few years ago and what that did to SeaWorld. And we even had Jean-Michel Cousteau at MACNA talking about uh, cetaceans, about whales in captivity. And we as aquarists often think, well, whales are sentient beings, dolphins, they're like us. Well, you could make that argument about the fishes we keep. Where does it end? We're all connected. Think about it. That's my topic. (laughs) If you have any questions, please.